This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Author's Tale, where you get to listen to casual conversations with prominent New Zealand authors, produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. While I'm taking a break before I present Series 2 in 2023 of The Author's Tale, I'm going to be bringing you some bonus episodes. The Heritage Book Awards were held on the 20th of October 2022 at the St. Michael and All Angels Church in Christchurch and are administered by the New Zealand Society of Authors. Coming up on this episode are my interviews with David Hill, the winner of the Best Children's Heritage Book, and also with Jenny Patrick, the winner of the Best Heritage Fiction Book. You'll also hear them give some tips of books to buy for Christmas gifts, along with their own. Don't hesitate to jump online or go to your local bookstore to purchase your own copy of their work, if not for yourself, then as a gift for someone you care about this Christmas. Please bear in mind that all of these conversations were carried out over the phone, some to the depths of the New Zealand countryside where you'll hear the pulsing of the phone line and others are on the mobile in the breeze. I apologise in advance for the varying sound quality. Coming up now is my chat with David Hill, author of Coast Watchers, which won Best Children's Book at the Heritage Book Awards. Coast Watchers was originally published by Penguin in August 2021. So congratulations, David, on your win for the best children's book in the Heritage Book Awards um, this year. I mean, that was what a what a fabulous win that is. I was very pleased indeed, Stephanie. Actually, um, I've sort of been shortlisted a couple of times with other titles. I do seem to be writing a lot of books set in the past. Must be a reflection of the author's age or something. The author's age, maybe, but also perhaps just how important it is for everybody that we actually remember all these stories. You know, and I think as we get older, we realise the the importance, don't we? I think so. And um, John McIntyre, the um, late wonderful bookseller from Kilburnie, um, said to me once some years ago, you should be writing historical novels, David. And I said to him, oh, John, I'm not any good at writing about 19th century New Zealand. And John snorted and said, (laughs) you realise that for most of your readers, history began about 15 years ago. And it really was a bit of a revelation, that, Stephanie. Um, So it made me realise there were topics I could maybe think of. Let's now really focus on your wonderful book, Coast Watcher. So it was published in August of last year by Puffin. Um, Tell us a bit about the book. Well, um, every author, I think, Stephanie, is familiar with a situation where people say to you, Mm. you should write about so-and-so, or I've got a story that I know you'll just want to write about. And I think like most authors, my reaction to such a thing is, that's very interesting of you, thank you. And then I sort of put it aside and think (laughs) no more. Mm. But um, about two years ago, um, an acquaintance did say to me, have you ever thought of writing about coast watchers? Mm. You've written some novels about our soldiers, our airmen, our sailors. How about the coast watchers? And that did resonate with me. Mm. These, you know, young men who had to watch for enemy movement, mostly in the Pacific. And of course, you know, who, if they were captured, weren't regarded as um, serving personnel, but were regarded as spies and therefore liable to the, you know, most severe of punishments, including death. 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I realised there was a topic there, definitely. Oh, absolutely. And I think what strikes me about your book, of course, because it's set in the Solomon Islands, isn't it? Uh-huh, around that area, yeah, sure. Around, around yeah. that area. And that is often a part of World War Two history that we don't acknowledge. Even the, even the war in the Pacific, exactly. I think you could probably ask half a dozen children at any school and you'll say, what can you tell me about World War Two?" And they'll instantly tell you about the Nazis and the Holocaust, yes. but they won't know anything mm. at all about the war that was actually on our own you know, back door. Those children, of course, are now three, four generations removed from yes. the war too. Mm. Um, so the voices that might have been able to speak directly to them have have, have died. Yes. But yes, it remains an obscure theatre of the war. And mm. I think um, an inappropriately obscure theatre, there's a, a lot to be known about it. And I remember as a kid, my grandmother flat refused to buy anything that was Japanese made for a very exactly. long time. There was a different attitude towards the Japanese treatment of their prisoners. Yes. The Japanese, you know, military code of Bushido meant that surrendering was seen as an act of cowardice. Mm. And so prisoners of war were to be treated as cowards. So they were treated far more severely than German, than prisoners of war um, trapped by the Germans. And a lot of anger and distress among the families of those at home. Yes, Dolly, I mean, I'm just thinking here in Christchurch, Longbanks Peninsula there, we have a lot of um, the gun and place. Oh, yes, the military sort of, yes, yeah, yeah. Earth, do they call them? I, you know what I'm talking about, though. Um, and they're uh, yes, dotted around the mean, peninsula, sure. and that was purely because of, of the Japanese threat. We've just been up in Auckland um, for, as part of a holiday, and we went to Mount Victoria in Devonport, mm. which was the site also yes. for um, heavy calibre guns that were meant to guard Auckland from a possible Japanese invasion. Yeah. It was very much on people's minds. Yeah. That, that is Absolutely. preserved as a sort of an historic site, but a lot mm. of others aren't. No, they're not. When we did the the Heritage Book Awards, and so un, you know, unfortunately you weren't there, and I had the, the job <clears> of reading that little bit from your book, and... I tried my hardest to sort of evoke what um, what you were trying to to portray, and that came out from the very first chapter, and that was when they arrived, when they okay. sort of they they exited yeah. off the ship and and stepped into the warm waters, and I love that. But we, you know, the um, <laughs> yes. the, the, the the character says, oh, "It's warm." You know, like it was quite shocked yeah. at how warm it was. Um, so move us on from that opening chapter, which was, you know, when they arrived and that young the man. Yes, right. that yeah. young yeah. man basically being thrown in, isn't he? Thrown into the deep end. And what a great opening chapter for a book. Absolutely I'm glad riveting. if it worked, Stephanie, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, for young readers, you do have to try and catch them early. And I've got this habit, I guess, in the sort of historical-type novels I've written of trying to start with a, a, a brisk, moderately eventful episode yes. and then starting to fill in some of the background. Oh, I um, because a I think it's a fabulous opening chapter. Mm. I'm glad if it worked that way, certainly. Yeah. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. And then um, I wanted also to give the sense of young Frank having a personal history as well yes. as, you know, a military history. Yes. Um, so through the book, I wanted him, his mate Wally, and the Australian Les, mm. whom at first they're sort of, you know, on pretty edgy terms with, but mm. who gradually becomes their friend during the book. I wanted them all to have their stories and their secrets. Mm. And, um, um, the book's dedicated to my dad. My dad never fought in World War II, but he was in the Home Guard. Right. And um, 
the whole business about Frank suffering from tuberculosis, mm, that yes. was something that my dad remembered happening to mm. a number of his friends in their youth. It was, yes. it was the dreadful disease, you know, mm. of the 1920s, 30s. So Absolutely. I wanted that to go in as well. Yeah, and I think for um, for the young readers today, having spent the last three years dealing with a pandemic and having their eyes open yep. to what that actually <laughs> that was means, relevant. Yep. absolutely. And I think going to capture more readers now than possibly what it would have done, purely because they'll be able to relate to it a little bit easier. You know, having had yes, that, so. you know, that sort of uh, that global effect, something that affects people on a global level, which prior to that we hadn't had for a very long time. That's exactly right. Yes, uh, I mean it's it's not the sort of relevance I would want it no, to have had, yes. but it does seem it's one of those curious sort of pieces of um, coincidence. So yes, mm. um, it may give that feeling mm. of relevance of um, the fact of health being more and more of an issue than it might have been a couple of years ago. Yes, and also just the awareness as well of your of your global citizen. Yeah. You know um, who they are, where they come from, and how cultures vary. We're not all the same. We all think a little I differently. I wanted that to be very, yes, I wanted that to be very much a feature. Um, one of the scenes I enjoyed writing most in the book was where um, young Frank comes face to face with a, a young Japanese soldier, mm. um, somebody who's scarcely, scarcely a man. He's almost a boy. Mm. And I wanted the scene to indicate that, you know, people's affection and people's respect for each other can surpass the idea of war. Mm. And I did, of course, want the scenes with young Arthur, the Solomon Islander, yes. to be key features in the book. And I, I actually fell for Arthur when I was writing it, Stephanie. I yeah. thought I'd love to have had a friend like this young mm. guy. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I hope he's impressive. I wanted him to be an impressive young man. Yeah, so look, just talk us through. Don't do a spoiler, obviously, because we want people to pick up the book and read it. <laughs> But just give us a really brief sort of synopsis, I guess, of the book. Well, um, the book begins as the um, Allied forces are beginning to advance in the Pacific in the second part of World War II. Um, coast watchers are being placed on various Solomon Islands to watch for the movements of the retreating Japanese. Mm. And the two young New Zealanders, Frank and Wally, their Australian soldier who's meant to be their guard, Les, are placed on an obscure island. Mm. They look for signs of any activity. Um, they're startled one day by being confronted by this young Solomon Islander, Arta. Mm. And at first, um, Les, the Australian's very suspicious of him. Wally and Frank are more prepared to see him as a friend. Arta leads them in devious ways to his village. And there they come across a secret. They come across information mm. which could radically change the Allied plans over oh. the next few months. Mm. So getting this information back mm. without being caught by the Japanese mm. becomes the direction of the book in its mm. last parts. Mm. I hope that doesn't, doesn't give too much away. No, but do you know what? It says to me instantly this should be on the, t on the screen. I'd be, wouldn't that be wonderful? In fact, yes. I can instantly picture it as being one of those, you know, a six-parter or something that you're glued to every night. You know, what happens next? When I write, um, I always have a very clear picture of what my characters look like. Yes. Um, I've actually got a poor visual imagination, strangely enough. Mm. So I have to work fairly hard to try and provide a convincing, um, authentic sort of setting for yeah. it. So I did a lot of reading. Mm. Um, and if it, com if it comes across as visually colourful, then I'd be delighted. It's something I'm not good at. And uh, if it does work, I'm always very pleased. Isn't it funny how you say you're not good at that? But yet when I read that opening chapter, 
chapter, and I instantly pictured yes, it. Right. I, could, I could see it instantly. So I think oh, you, I think yeah. you, you don't probably appreciate just how good you are <laughs> at that. Um, um, I think my opening sentences, um, I mean, the, the sentences in my opening draft are radically different from the final draft. If anyone thinks what they see on the bookshelf for sale is, is what you started out writing, they're completely wrong. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Indeed. <laughs> now, the now, question but, from people, do you do any editing, is always an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> just a little, just a little bit here and there, bit of a nip, yes, bit of exactly. a tuck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, always say, I always say about about 60% actually yes. is the editing for oh. me. David, do you want to read a bit from your book? I'm just wondering, do you want to read a segment from that book where he meets the Japanese boy? Um, right, I hadn't. Can I put the phone down just Absolutely. for a second? Absolutely. I am putting you on the spot, but I thought it would be really lovely to perhaps no, that's have fine. a little snippet. The, the scene is when uh, Frank has been in Arta's village, the village of the young Solomon Islander. Um, he's got this information. There's suggestions that the Japanese are suspicious and are patrolling the area. So Frank is hidden in the jungle for the night and stays there till dawn comes and at dawn, he's thirsty, there's a river nearby, he wants to get some, some water. Um, so, Stephanie, you just stop me when you want me to. Okay, he moved as silently, sorry, he moved as silently as he could across the open stretch of ground, pausing to lift the longest fern fronds without his machete blade. A dozen steps and he was on the bank. There must be pretty big floods through here when it was rainy weather because the stream bed was wide. A glittering skein of water curving along it, sliding over stones and fallen branches, making little pools. The banks were high. The far side was about ten yards away. Even closer than that, and right beside the water, bent over as he drank from cupped hands, knelt a Japanese soldier. Frank saw olive green trousers and a shirt ripped and frayed across the shoulders. A peaked cloth cap lay on the mossy stones beside the man as he bent to scoop up more water. Black hair flopped forward. For maybe half a second, the suddenness, the shock of seeing the strange figure held Frank still. Then he moved without even thinking. The three o three rifle was up in firing position, butt hard against his shoulder, left hand gripping the wooden stock, right hand thumbing off the safety catch and shoving the bolt forward, so a round slid into the breech. Arta's machete fell from his hand. He didn't even realize he let it go. It took two seconds at the most. Then he was standing, legs apart and braced, leaning slightly forward, just as the instructors back in New Zealand had caught him. His eyes squinted along the sights. His right index finger touched the trigger. The bead of the foresight pointed straight at the chest of the Japanese soldier. One squeeze and the man was dead. The thud of blade on earth and snick of rifle bolt brought the Jap's head jerking upwards. He lurched sideways where he squatted, almost fell. His head jerked towards the far bank and Frank saw a rifle lying there, shorter and stubbier than his maybe five yards out of the, the enemy's reach. The man froze, staring at the coast watcher poised on the bank above, rifle barrel trained on his chest. The knees of his uniform trousers were torn too. One boot was held together with string. His shirt sagged open at the neck, and Frank could make out skinny ribs, heaving as the Japanese dragged in breath. The straight black hair fell across his forehead. He was small, thin, looked only half-fed, Young also, as far as Frank could tell, his staring face seemed like a boy's, and he was terrified. His mouth hung open, then he began swallowing. 
his skinny Adam's apple bobbing up and down. He left himself unarmed and helpless. Now death was only a couple of seconds away. Frank held his rifle steady, drew in a breath. His finger began to tighten on the trigger. Oh, let's end it there. there, Let's end it there because we don't want to know what happens next. You're going to have to buy the book to find out. Thank you, Stephanie. You're on my side. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's. I've got a couple of questions which are obviously um, ones that I hadn't pre warned you about, but I just wanted to ask you because we're heading towards Christmas, and ideally we want people to put this in a Christmas stocking for a reader. Um, now, if you were to buy this for a reader, um, who do you think it would really suit? I think the book was aimed um, at readers of about probably 10 through to about 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing is, Stephanie, that a lot of adults yeah. like reading mm. um young adult or children's fiction with an historical setting. You know, they know about this. They've had relatives. So I think um, that age group was who it was aimed for, about Mm. 10 to 15-year-olds. But I know that I've heard from a lot of adults that they've found it intriguing, been interested to hear about the history. Yes. So, yes, um, any of those groups, I'd be happy Mm. to see reading it. And the other question I'd like to ask you, so if you were to buy it for someone as a gift, so if you were purchasing your book and you were to pair it with another, so you were going to give them two books for Christmas, what would be the other book you'd pair it with, not one of your own? (laughs) Goodness, I'd be happy to see it paired with any of Fleur Beale's books. Fleur Beale, the wonderful Wellington writer, um, who's written um, a lot of um, teenage and younger fiction set in contemporary times yes. and in the in the 19th century, which yes. I'm no good at writing about. Mm. So Do you have a favourite? Do you have a favourite, though? Um, oh, goodness. Um, the one I like very much by Fleur is I Am Not Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R. It's the story of the girl um, who's brought up in a very, very fundamentalist Christian sect wow. and who begins to break free and make her own identity as a young woman. Wow. Um, Always relevant and very, very forcefully written by Fleur. And what a fabulous sort of antithesis to your book. It is. It's uh, Fleur can write about topics which I can't, and she just does them so authentically. Yeah, so they would pair brilliantly together, wouldn't they? But it's been just wonderful talking to you about your book. Oh, thank you very much for arranging it and being willing to do so. Oh, no, I appreciate I, I, that. No, it's coming up to Christmas, and we want to encourage everyone to go out and buy a book. Thank you so much for your time this morning, David, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And all the best with your writing. Thanks again, Stephanie. You take care. And all care. the best to you for Christmas and the and your script writing. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Coming up is my chat with the wonderful historical novelist Jenny Patrick. She won the Heritage Book Award for Best Fiction Book for her book Harbouring. This was published by Penguin in March 2022. First of all, Jenny, congratulations on your win for Best Fiction in the Heritage Book Awards this year. Thank you. I was really thrilled about that. Um, and it was lovely to come down to Christchurch and uh, be part of that um, Lovely ceremony in the church. Yeah, it, I did enjoy the whole the whole experience. It's quite unique, isn't it, being in that in that church? Yes, yes, lovely church. Mm. And uh, I had the first time I'd been in it, yeah. and uh, it was very fitting for a heritage award. Yeah, to it be is. in the heritage building. Yeah, <laughs> completely. When you when you get told that it was the first cathedral, was the original cathedral yes, of the city. Yes, and, and I didn't know that. No, yes. yeah, yeah, it is absolutely beautiful. But look, so your book is called Harbouring. Um, yes. And I just, uh, the cover 
I just can't not comment on the cover. I think the cover is beautiful. It's very eye-catching. Well, I often have a real battle with my uh, publishers over the cover uh, of, very, of various books, but I didn't over... Well, we had a battle to get there, <laughs> but I <laughs> I must admit um, I'm very pleased with it too. Mm. I think it's eye-catching, and which is what the publishers want, and it's got a quite a good feeling of the book as well, yeah. which is what I want, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And it has, has that sort of heritage feel about it with sort of almost the sepia, yes, the, with the sepia tones and then that lovely, yes. that beautiful woman stepping out of it with her red skirt and then the red lettering. Yes. It's very old heritage colours. Yes, yes, I agree. Mm. And... Um, and I, uh, I'm pleased with it. Yeah. I'm really pleased with the with what. And I love on the back that the back has got that lovely. Yes. I would call it a a rich red, mm. really, mm. and a, and a picture of the of the settlement of Wellington yeah. in the early days. Absolutely, Jenny. Tell yeah. us a bit about your book. Explain to us, sort of, you know, what is harbouring well, about. Well, it's it's really about the settlement of uh, Wellington, of uh, Whanganui Atara, if you use its Māori name. But it's, I'm telling it from the point of view not of the people in charge, the Wakefield Company and uh, the tribal chiefs, but of uh, people who were coming here out of desperation, mm. both Māori and Pākehā. Mm. In the book, I use a first person. I speak in the voice of two settlers, Welsh settlers, Hugh and Martha, mm. who are coming from um, Wales, uh, and they're both very poor. Mm. And I, I have some chapters in the voice of Hugh and some in the voice of Martha. And then I have also some chapters in the voice of... Uh, Hina Roa, a Māori Mm. who has been enslaved most of her life and is trying to break away Mm. and uh, and do her own thing too. And the three, those three characters meet up Mm. and uh, various things happen. Uh, So it it was quite a challenge for me to try to write in authentically in those three different voices from three different places. Yes. But I enjoyed that challenge. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's quite unique. It makes the book very unique right from the opening pages that you do write oh, in, the, in the first person for each of those characters. Um, and you yes. get a very clear sense of the individual characters as you read it. There's, you know, do you? Oh, good. Yeah, yes. no, no, you've done a great <laughs> job. Um, and, but it does make it very unique because very rarely do you get a piece of fiction where the entire book is done. Well, normally if it's in the first person, you only get it from one person's perspective. Yes, that's right. But to right. get it from yes. three... Uh, is, yeah, three no, different voices. Yes. And uh, I knew I might... Be, it was a bit of a challenge to write in the voice of a Maori woman, and I wondered whether... Um, I would get stick for it um, mm. from anyone, but I haven't. Um, it no. seems to have been quite well um, received. Yes, but I think as all writers um, do, you're always speaking for someone else. Yes. So you always have to get yes. into the head and to the character. It doesn't matter where they're from or who they are. As a writer, as a good writer, you do your research, yes. you have the ability to do that. And yes. you've yes. definitely you done that. You should be able to. 
Yes, indeed. You should mm. be able to do it. Mm. And in fact, that's what fiction writers enjoy doing yes. is whether you're writing in the first person, as mm. I was in this mm. book, or in the third person mm. or through the eyes of somebody mm. else, you still have to get into well, the mood of that. And I've, I've written in the voice of somebody from the Faroe Islands yes. and from somebody from Samoa mm. and people from all over. Mm. And so that's that's what's fun about writing fiction, really, to oh, me anyway. That's what makes you a good writer. If you were forced to only write what you knew, gosh, well, that would be a bit dull, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, it could become it could become a bit dull. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, it's mm. got to come off the page. The writing's got to come off the page so that the reader mm. is into it too mm. um, and is living what you are mm. trying to mm. um, write about mm. uh, if yeah. you can't do that, you shouldn't be writing. No. So, so thinking about the, the research you would have had to do for this book, I mean, you, you yes. yourself, you live in Wellington, don't you? I do, and I look down at my house. I'm at, the, at this very moment, I'm looking down at the harbour, beautiful sunny day here in Wellington. Oh, lucky you. Um, and, and I can see the whole harbour. Mm. And my, I grew up here, and my children and my grandchildren grew up here, mm. and... My parents lived here all their lives. My mm. grandparents too. So wow. it is um, it is um, um, a two ranga waiwai for me. Yes. It's a place a place that is my home. Yes. So I I really wanted to write it well. Mm. Bearing that in mind, um, mm. this is the first book you've written set in Wellington, isn't it? Um, yes, it is set completely. Mm. The, one or two of my other novels, uh, Catching the Current and um, Skylark, have got fleetingly yes. in Wellington, mm. but uh, not one that's set here right through. Mm. And um, and I don't know why it took me so long, because this is my 10th novel, yeah. uh, to set one here when my heart is here. But often that's the hardest thing to do, isn't it? It's the hardest thing to write about something that is so close to you. And that's very true. And I tend to write about places and about times uh, that I don't know about, that I have to research to find out. And then I have to go to those places and like... um, I had to go to Denmark and the Faroe Islands to get um, a real picture in my eye of what those places mm. were like. But I had already lived in Samoa for inheritance, that mm. book. Um, so um, place is important to me. Mm. But I have tended to enjoy writing about places that were not familiar. Yes. Deniston Rose is a perfect example. I didn't know anything about Denston until I started researching it mm. and uh, going there and visiting it. I've, I've been there many, many mm. times now. Yes. Um, and can't, to me, the, the Denniston Plateau is one of those places um, that you yes. step onto. I personally feel like I'm surrounded by the ghosts of the Denniston yes. Plateau. Exactly, exactly what I felt. Mm. Um, you could just feel the ghosts and Absolutely. you could see uh, just a doorstep here yeah. or an old brick chimney yeah. standing out of the bush there, it is, an yeah. old iron bath, and mm. and that's all that's there now. And then there were yes. all, those, all those three towns up there at one time. It's just mind-blowing, isn't it? It is amazing. Is your family from Wales? 
originally? No. <laughs> no. So you're not. No. You, 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 do you have any Welsh blood in you at all? No. Fabulous. No, it was a it was a pure accident. I mean, I was looking for um, my my family originally were Scottish and Irish mm. and English, but um, I was looking for people who were um, at the bottom of the heap. Yes. And I had happened to be looking on uh, television at a program some time ago, uh, a, a documentary about conditions in the factories in Wales mm. at exactly the right time that I was um, wanting to write about. Mm -hmm. And it showed a picture of a row of huts, hovels, I would say, mm. um, where the workers uh, mm. were housed. And it was saying what terrible conditions it was. Mm. And I thought... Oh, okay. I'll yeah. make my people come from there, yeah. and then I had to start researching Wales, mm. of course, because mm. I didn't, I didn't have the background there. But there was an interesting connection that Welsh people had their own language mm. uh, and were having to speak English. Yeah, they were taken over uh, by the English. Yes, that's right. And so there's a sort of. Um, it connects to mm. this happening in Wellington or in New Zealand when the English came and were take it, their language was taking over yes. from Te Reo. Yes, I loved that connection that you made. And it all kept fitting. So mm. it was a happy accident because Welsh people love stories about, uh, you know, supernatural mm. uh, things and in the same way that Māori do mm. and... Uh, there were a lot of a, a lot of interesting connections there, yeah. which uh, I could uh, use in my story. And the title, Harbouring. Yes. Yeah. So, well, so why Harbouring? Well, it is uh, Harbouring has a lot of different meanings, mm. which is quite good, mm. and um, it makes you think. I mean, Harbouring can mean um, you are settling. Mm -hmm. I'm harbouring in this place, yes. and uh, so, and and of course. The harbour that I'm looking at um, means a lot to me, but it mm. also can mean that people are harbouring secrets yes. and there are some secrets that are yes. harboured, if you like, mm. in this book. Mm. And um, Yeah, I was going to say, it has almost a tone of menace about it too, yes. doesn't it? Yes, there is a sort of, yes. And I think the, um, the Wakefield Company, um, the New Zealand Company, were harbouring a, a certain amount of, they were not being totally honest no. in their um, in their dealings, mm. and some of the Maori chiefs were not being quite mm. open and honest too in their mm. dealings. So um, it's got a bit of menace, but also I think the title harbouring also means a settling too. Mm. You know, settling down. Take it how you like. Mm, yeah. <laughs> there were lots of other there were lots of other titles that we thought of before harbouring. Mm. I was wanting to call it in the head of the fish. Publisher said, No, we can't have that because we're also publishing a bit a book by Lloyd Jones, um, at about the same time that's called Fish. Oh. So um, <laughs> So I think harbouring is fabulous. It's better, yes, I think it's a much better name and it just came to me, mm. you know, I had all my family mm. and friends 
thinking, you know, what title can I have? And then, but it was me who thought that up, and I'm pleased with it. Yeah. It's a good one. I, I think it's great because it certainly captures yeah. what the, the essence of the story. So for people who know you from your best-selling book, Deniston Rose, this yes. is quite different to Deniston Rose, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it's quite different, and I'm pleased about that. I mean, I... Denston Rose was more like somebody sitting around the fire telling a story to everyone, mm, you know, with yes. a yarn in yes. a way. Yeah, that's a great um, word for it, a yarn. Yeah, perfect. Yes. And and uh, this is quite different. Mm. Um, and although I did use one or two chapters in Denston Rose in the voice of that awful mm-hmm. woman um, mm-hmm. who was the mother of Rose, mm. but... Um, this time, this is the first time I've written a book mm. all in first person. Yeah. I haven't done that before. Yeah. And and certainly all in three different voices, which yeah. was a, a challenge yeah. to me. And I think you're but right. A, a With, enjoying one. So if anyone thinks, oh, Jenny Patrick, I loved Deniston Rose. I know. And <laughs> I get that all, all the time. The time. Yeah. I bet you do. You've written 10 novels since then, haven't you? Or yes, a, a lot, yes. And they're all yes. very different. And, and they're it's all like, different. Yeah, yes. They're all completely different. <laughs> but what I would say is that if you loved Deniston Rose, um, don't think that you're going to pick up Harboring and not like it. You know, because no, it, because it is no. written so differently, it is thought provoking, and um, yes. and it definitely makes you, from a heritage point of view, from looking yes. at our own heritage point of view, it definitely makes you take a step back and start to question mm. stories you were told, things you've been led to yes. believe, and it yes. really gives you yes. that honest um, appraisal. Really, that there is always more than one side to a tale. Yes. Yes, mm. yes. Well, that's very good. I'm glad you got that from it because, mm. um, yes, I think it's important to say what I've been saying in mm. this book. And um, and there were things in, I mean, in all of my novels, they're all good stories, yes. I hope. Yes. You know, they take you along, mm. but in different ways. Mm. And, I mean, in Denston Rose, it was, if you like, about neglect of mm. a child mm. yeah absolutely. Uh, community mm. community responsibility for a child that mm. they were too busy doing other yeah. things mm. um i hope there's always something that yes. i'm saying absolutely. in each of the novels but the, in a in a different way yep and what i love as well about harboring is that i love the mm. fact that it is three characters who, as you've already said, they came from... So the, the two Welsh, the Hugh and Martha Pengallan, come from um, from Wales in absolutely horrid, a horrid situation. Horrid back condition. In, yeah, dreadful. They are yes. ultimately yes. wanting to improve their life situation. They get yes. fed the story yes. about, oh, the wonderful colonies yes. and how great life will be. <laughs> And of course, it's nothing like what they it's would. Nothing like no, that. complete no. lie. Fed a complete lie. And I love the fact that the yes. Maori character you have within yes. her own culture, she's a slave. And so you have these three yes. strong characters who would love to have something better. Um, and I love the fact yes. that you that you have given us this story because so often, the stories that are centered around the time of colonization are those of the you know of those of the people who had the money, who were doing the settling, yes. who could do all right for themselves. Yes. And we forget yes, that yes. actually they only got there on the backs of these people who were struggling. Oh, exactly on the backs. I mean, they deliberately brought a whole, as they crowed, uh, 
a cross-section yeah. of English society. What they meant yeah. was we want servants and labourers mm. as well as us land land um, mm. holders mm. Uh, to serve us. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, and, of course, those who came as servants mm. and both my all my ancestors came in that way mm. as workers mm. uh, and labourers, they all had the idea, well, we'll see about that. Yeah, exactly. We'll see if we can um, better our lives. And often in one generation, yeah. they were doing better. Yeah, and, uh, change that class situation. Yes, mm. the class situation just mm. didn't take yeah. hold here. But before we finish, I've got a mm. couple of questions I'd like to just put to you and see if you can answer them for me. So if you, were okay. to, if you were to buy your book as a Christmas gift, because we are heading towards Christmas and we want people to purchase this book and buy it for someone, who do you think it would really suit as a Christmas gift? Who would you buy it for? Well, now, I'm often interested that um, men quite like to read my books and I think it's because I often have a lot of practical stuff, yeah. my people, my characters are practical people, mm-hmm. working class people usually. Um, but I would say harbouring would be enjoyed right across the spectrum of, of um, old, middle and young people mm. who are interested in our, what, what happened in New Zealand and, and who like to read a good story. Yes. I think it's a page turner, but it also has got something more. Absolutely. than just being a page turner. And so I would say anyone who doesn't want just escapist mm-hmm. uh, literature yeah. but uh, wants a good story, a good uh, exciting story in a way, um, but also a bit of meat to chew on. I'm hoping, mm. <laughs> well, maybe it's a, a false hope, but I'm hoping that schools will, um, you know, for their senior yeah. school, uh, those senior pupils yeah. would uh, find this a really good and useful yeah. addition to their curriculum. I do. I think so. I think it's fabulous for that. Good. Yes. I really do. Now, yes. look, my, my last question for you. So if you were to give it as a gift to someone, what would be a yes. book that you would partner with it? You know, so if you'd give them two books, not one of your books to partner with, but someone yes. else's, what would you think would be a great sort of a complement to your book to go alongside it? Oh, <laughs> a New Zealand book? No, any book at all. I'm thinking. I'm no, thinking. that's right. I've really put um, you on the spot, it's, but it's yeah. often quite a good thing to, yeah, write, yeah. <laughs> to think about. I would like people to choose something that is a non-fiction book Um, and I've um, like there's a book called that I'm just reading at the moment that's called The End of Everything and it's it's about the cosmos and Mm. it's about um, how this the entire world might end Mm. Um, I mean that's but it's written in such a lively, yes. it's by an um, astrophysicist yes. uh, woman, mm-hmm. and it, I can't remember her name now, but it's, it's called The End of Everything. thought provoking, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it's, and it's not, not a big book, no. uh, but, and you have to put it down every now and then and think, wow, yeah. wow, my head is bursting. Yes. But um, 
<laughs> Fabulous. Well, but they do actually is... sound like they would complement each other because you've got one, one your book, which is about people trying their hardest to escape the, the drudgery of their existence to something yes. better. And then you've got this other book, a modern book written by a modern um, astrophysicist yes. talking about, well, yes. everything might actually come to an end. So how are we yes, going to better our, how, how can we avoid that, I yes. suppose, and how can we improve our, our situation globally? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, I love it yeah. when you start thinking about things yeah. like that. Great. But look, mm. thank you so yes. much, Jenny. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you about your book. I think it's fabulous. It's and I hope it does and really, really well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for your time. I really lovely. appreciate it. And you have a lovely day. Bye. You do too. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jenny. Bye. We're now going to take a listen to the reading that Jenny did from her book Harbouring when she got her prize at the Heritage Book Awards. But I'll read from Martha's voice. This is in Newport, Wales, 1839. I sat there in the doorway of our little hut, pig pen more like, looking down the row for my hue. Alfie fussing on my knee and the light fading, winter dragging on. How I longed for a bit of sunshine. April, which should be spring, still bitter cold. Smoke from the manufactory chimneys blotting out what feeble rays might please themselves to warm us. One by one, the workers dragged themselves up the lane, even the ones who'd stopped for a pint and disappeared into the doorways. Twenty-five identical huts, shoulder to shoulder, dirty, leaking, stinking, rat-infested hovels, which the boss called fit accommodation. Fit for the likes of us, desperate enough, hungry enough. The outhouse, which served us all, overflowed when it rained, which was one day in three. When Hugh and another worker went to complain, the boss made a sorry face but explained that times were hard for him as well, the price of steel low, markets in the doldrums, and so on. Boss always has some excuse. When things improved, he would see to it, he promised. Meantime, our little ones fell sick and died. But where was Hugh? As dark fell, I feared he would not come. My man is not cut out for the life in a manufactory, not after his month's adventuring in Spain with the Legion. His lovely spirit was fading, anyone could see that. No more bedtime stories about fairies and giants, nor a kiss and a cuddle for me at night. Had had he run off and left us, or worse, been injured at work and no one bothered to report it? Well, I could not sit all night waiting, Swallowing what little pride remained in my poor body, I put our little bit of supper in a tin against the marauding rats and waded through the mud down the road to Maud's, knocked on her door. They were all at supper, all five, crammed around the lamp and as dour as a pack of donkeys. Have you seen my Hugh? I asked Thomas. He's not come home. Was he hurt, did you notice? Thomas paused in his chewing and shook his head. He's not one of the world's great conversationalists, maybe on account of Maud's chatter. He ran off at whistle, beat us all out, then went back to his chewing. 
I waited for more, but none was offered, so said my thanks and backed away from their pitying stares. But oh, when I trudged back, there he was, my Hugh, in a fervent outside our door, shouting my name. He had no shame, that man, hopping and shouting for all the world to hear, but I did love him for it. How long since I'd seen that light in his eye, the quick smile, the way his feet would beat a dancing rhythm, keeping time with some mad idea in his head. Three months at the foundry had quenched that fire, but here it was again, blazing. Martha, love, he shouted. He tucked a stray lock of my wretched, unruly curls back into my bun, then kissed me full on the mouth, the wanton man. Here you are, my darling. Come in, come in, hear what I have to tell. Alfie chuckled to see his daddy and held out his arms. Hugh tossed him high and caught him. Fly, my little dragon, baby drag, and tossed him again. Whatever could have brought about this transformation? But Hugh would not say until he had eaten, drunk his mug of tea, and set himself down by the bed, which served as couch as well as sleeping quarters. I turned down the oil lamp, lit a stub of candle and waited. Hugh, sweetheart, will you ever spill this great good news or leave my poor heart beating out of its cage? I dragged him down by me and we sat close, our Spanish blanket draped across our knees against the clammy air. Once it would not have stretched to cover us both, When I married, I was his broad, bonny lass, strong as an ox, my skin freckled as a thrush's egg. Now my poor dress hung loose over breasts that did not tempt a man. The rug tucked over us us all too comfortably. Well, said Hugh at last, the glow from the candle turning his dear face into a changing landscape like moon behind cloud, I have been offered work with the colonel. He told me the story, and I listened, weighing the good news against whatever it was that he was holding back. He had three weeks' work buying up goods, and then what? Finally, he came to it. My man was offered a passage to the Colonel Wakefield. The Colonel is Colonel Wakefield. My man was offered passage to some strange wild country on the other side of our great world, to New Zealand. He would be away, far away, for half a year at least if he took sail with the colonel, three or four months on the sea even before he arrived at some distant far shore. And what of his wife and son? I waited in silence. Hugh was always one to dream up a solution, often with the aid of mythical creatures who rise out of some lake and foretell his future. Both of us knew that the work of the foundry was Hugh's worst solution so far in his short married life, the Spanish War, a close second. Hugh held my hand, turned the little gold ring that he had brought back from the war. Here is a plan, he said, his brow furrowing with the effort to persuade me. I have not at all worked out yet, but listen, Martha Arnold, we will have a chance at last. His plan was that he would sail with the colonel to a country no one had heard of. Then Alfie and I were to come as immigrants and join him there, where we would make our fortunes in a gentle and blessed land at the bottom of the world. That's your plan, I said. 
He gave me a rueful smile. Sweetheart, I said I did not have it all worked out, but don't you see? And what meantime? We can't stay here if you leave the foundry. He swallowed. Gareth would put you up. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Author's Tale. I hope you've really enjoyed listening to my conversations with the award winners from the Heritage Book Awards. And I hope you've also gotten some really good ideas for Christmas gifts. If you'd like to hear the full recording of the Heritage Book Awards, you can do so via the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz and search under Author's Tale. Or you can find a link on the New Zealand Society of Authors webpage at authors.org.nz. If you want to hear more conversations with fabulous New Zealand authors, have a listen to series one of The Author's Tale, which you can find by searching The Author's Tale on pretty much any podcast platform. If you want to offer feedback, author suggestions or sponsorship of The Author's Tale, you can contact me at theauthorstale.nz at yahoo.com. I'll be back in 2023 with series two, but until then, don't forget to subscribe for any bonus episodes like this one. Until then, thank you for listening.